Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This week, we're, uh, we're going to talk about three stories we're reading. Something we mentioned during the last episode, or maybe it was before that, um, author and friend of the podcast, S.G. Brown, has three stories that he has uh, published on Amazon. And they are, um, in no particular order, Remedial English for Reanimated Corpses, Dr. Sinister's Home for Retired Villains, and Scattered Showers with a Chance of Daikaiju. Really excited to see new fiction from Scott. And we're going to have him on um, later to talk about these stories and maybe some other stuff. We'll see. That's right. Before we jump right into the reviews, for anybody who hasn't listened to like the eight different episodes where we reviewed stuff of S.G. Brown's, here's a little bit about the author. S.G. Brown is the author of the novels Less Than Hero, Big Egos, Lucky Bastard, Faded, and Breathers, as well as the ebook short story collection Shooting Monkeys in a Barrel, and the heartwarming holiday novella I Saw Zombies Eating Santa Claus. Before I continue, I want to point out we've reviewed Less Than Hero, Big Egos, Lus- Lucky Bastard, I almost said Lusty Bastard. That's an entirely different book. We're um, going to review Lusty Bastard as soon as we find big <laughs> search on Amazon right now. <laughs> we also reviewed I Saw Zombies Eating Santa Claus, and Livius did kind of his own mini review of shooting monkeys in a barrel so mr brown has been very very well covered by our podcast and his writing has been influenced by chuck polnick christopher moore kurt vonnegut and stephen king along with the films of charlie kaufman and wes anderson he's an ice cream connoisseur guinness aficionado cat enthusiast and a sucker for it's a wonderful life there you go he also has, which I'm starting to notice. No, no, hold on a second. He also has a typo-free bio on Amazon, which is getting to be harder and harder to find. Yeah, there was even a typo in uh, in um, one of our upcoming episodes. I saw a typo for an author that we have mm-hmm. coming up. So, yeah, and, and a little big time. Not that S.G. Brown's not big time. This guy is big time. But um, even the big time authors are getting typos on Amazon. So know, good job, S.G. Brown. The reason I mentioned that is I sent Rob a picture of my uh, my Kindle today. I opened it up to read um, one of these stories, and uh, I have the whatever ad supported version of Kindle. So whenever you open it up, there's an ad for like a featured book of the day, and there's a typo right in the description of what is going out to. I'm assuming you know tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of Kindles, and right there on the front page, another typo. So I think that we should look at getting a job working for Amazon as typo. De- detectors experts i don't know what would that be called <laughs> the typo proofreaders proofreaders um we have to give it a really good title otherwise they won't give us good money yeah because proofreading doesn't sound like it pays a whole lot not at all not not even close i am going to read uh, the um here's how we're going to do this it's three um short stories so we're going to read the synopses uh talk about them a little bit we'll kind of uh collect our thoughts at the end and uh we'll go on from there So the first one we're going to be talking about is Remedial English for Reanimated Corpses. Welcome to Bella Lugosi University, where zombies, vampires, werewolves, mummies, ogres, ghouls, and other creatures of the night and of nightmares learn how to become better, well-rounded monsters. The problem is that even among their fellow students, zombies are treated like second-class monsters. They're victims of vampire fraternity pranks, frequent targets of werewolf sprayings, and are always the last ones picked for dodgeball. At Bella Lugosi U, vampires and werewolves rule while zombies most definitely drool. 
When they get pushed too far, a group of zombie underclassmen decide it's time to take matters into their own decomposing hands and end the cycle of abuse. But first, they need to work on their vocabulary skills. All right. Uh, I want to say right up front, these are short stories that we're talking about, so you're probably not going to get the 30 minutes of conversation about the story that we usually would for a full novel, um, because there's just not room for it, especially with these synopses being as effective as they are. Pretty much most of the points that I would hit on have already been touched on in this synopsis. Yes. I also saw that Rob has a note much further down the page. Um, Although you might think... You might think that this takes place in the world of breathers. Um, it, it does not, at least not to the best of my knowledge. Um, it is zombies, and if you're a longtime fan of S.G. Browns, you, you'll be familiar with breathers. This is not. Um, this takes all kinds of monsters into account, which is not something that breathers did. Yeah, um, one of the things that S.G. Brown has done for the release of these stories is he's doing a release party on Facebook. Is because they're still in the process of being released release party for each of these stories a week at a time and so there's um an event on facebook and he puts a lot of information in there and that's one of the things that he made sure to point out because people were asking questions and stuff like that so that is straight from the author's mouth not taking place in the breather's world but um definitely inspired and and some things borrowed from i think i can't remember the name of the teacher that uh the story starts out with but uh the teacher, the professor who's teaching English, um, has the same last name as um, the main character in Breathers. But they're different characters. I did not catch that. Bingo. You know Mr. Brown loves to do his uh, crossovers and homages and stuff like that in his stories. Very true. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of sad that I didn't catch that. All right. So um, we are uh, we start this book off in a classroom where... It's quite honestly one of the funniest scenes that I've read in a while. Professor Warner, by the way, is the professor in this classroom, as Rob had kind of mentioned, um, trying to teach zombies um, how to um, uh, vowels, the the sounds the vowels make. <laughs> and, um, uh, and none of these zombies are able to actually speak. So, so the, all the sounds that they make are uh, zombie moaning sounds, basically. Yeah, but... Um... So our the uh, the protagonist that we have is is a girl, like so we re- we read this story from the the perspective of a girl zombie, and um, her like inner monologue is perfectly legible and understandable, and it's explained that like there's something that's just kind of you know missing when it comes to vo- zombies actually vocalizing their thoughts and things like that. So zombies aren't dumb, they're just well, some of them are dumb because their brains are kind of rotting and stuff like that, but the biggest problem is that there's some sort of disconnect between their thoughts and how they speak. And um, so she appreciates this professor doing everything he can to help the zombies speak better, even though it's just pretty much pointless, which is kind of a hilarious way to start out the story. I'm going to read a quote to... um try to explain that because I also thought it was hilarious. But there's a disconnect somewhere between my liquefying brain and decaying vocal cords that makes everything I say come out sounding like an uninspired orgasm, which is something at which I've had plenty of practice. (laughs) So not long after this class, we're introduced to kind of the, uh, not only individually introduced to the different groups in the school, as Livius mentioned earlier, like 
vampires and werewolves and mummies come up and stuff like that. Um, but also the struggle of the zombie is pretty much laid out through some uh, direct bullying that happens um, from the werewolves and from the zombies. And even some, I think, I don't think the mummies were super aggressive, but I think the mummies were being little bitches about something too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I don't know what else we can say. (laughs) It's like, there, there isn't a lot. I mean, the story is, is hilarious. Um, it's super funny and, and written, um, I'd say a little bit in the style of breathers, you know, where we're really kind of seeing the, the, the ridiculousness of people's reactions in this case, other monsters reactions to them. Um, it's, it's a fun, well thought out and really, really funny story. Yeah. And, um, in his, uh, launch party, Facebook page or Facebook events, uh, Brown goes into a lot of detail of, of how he was inspired to think of, cause like, if you think about it, no one's ever really framed the different monsters as being like a, like a class system of any kind, like a hierarchy. The, That's yeah, what I was thinking. Yep. That I was, that I'm aware of anyway. And so he talks about his inspiration for, um, thinking about why the zombies are kind of the nerds and the werewolves are the, the jocks and the, vampires are like the frat boys and stuff like that so it's kind of interesting but that's pretty much the layout and um just like any group that's pushed for you know a certain amount of time eventually they're gonna decide it's time to fight back and as the synopsis suggests that's pretty much what happens you know who's at the top of that hierarchy right uh podcasters my my people (laughs) the vampires Yep. I'm going to give you the the description of vampires here because I think this is spot on. Always primping and preening and full of themselves, all charm and seduction and jello shots, trying to get you into bed so they can drink your blood and then brag about it to their buddies. Dude, it's like they were just describing you. That's me. Me and jello shots. (laughs) So he does that with all of the different... um monsters kind of a description of of how they act but there's also just like i have two of them highlighted i don't have the the werewolf one but um i got the mummies and the vampires ones highlighted mummies are a bunch of stuck up rolls of charmin which i thought was pretty funny and vampires are total stalkers werewolves were something else i can't remember werewolves were the jocks um yeah oh yeah but you know what i'm saying like there was a quote oh i gotcha (laughs) <laughs> okay, just did a quick search because <laughs> I didn't want to leave the werewolves out of this uh, little list of things that I just brought up, and uh, <laughs> it's a really easy one. I don't know. I don't remember this. Werewolves are total dicks. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think that uh, yeah. I, I mean, and, and the beauty of the story is kind of the as you had said, the description of the hierarchy and, and how everybody reacts and what their particular problems are. And of course, centered being the the zombies. Um, good stuff. Really good stuff. I mean, I laughed out loud a couple of times reading reading this story. Yeah, and there's those little moments, too, that kind of contrast. There was a little bit of a touching quote that I liked a lot, and I highlighted. Just because our hearts have stopped beating doesn't mean they can't ache. Aw. Yeah. Poor little zombies. Poor little rotting corpses. <laughs> Ready to move on to uh, to our second story? Yep. All right, so our next story is Dr. Sinister's Home for Retired Villains, and here's the synopsis. 
Dr. Jekyll, Professor Moriarty, and Count Dracula are three of the longest tenured residents at Dr. Sinister's home for retired villains, where obsolete and vanquished villains go to live out the rest of their meaningless lives. It's hard enough being a diabolical relic, stuck in your outdated version of treachery, all plans of world domination fading in your rearview magic mirror, but when you have to share meals and movie nights with dozens of other washed-up scoundrels, miscreants, and evildoers like Captain Hook, the Big Bad Wolf, and the Wicked Witch of the West, conflicts are bound to arise. As a general rule, villains tend to be sore losers. And at Dr. Sinister's, you never know when someone might turn the swimming pool into a shark pit or bring a death ray to Taco Tuesday. Yeah, um... Similar to the first story, I think, in that, you know, we're collecting up some some well-known um, fictional characters. And this one's sp- very specific fictional characters as opposed to just groups of monsters and kind of, again, almost explaining like the hierarchy um, in this retirement home. But God damn it. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say I know I figure we'll talk about this later. This is my favorite of the three stories. That's interesting. Um, we'll have to talk more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is this one is from the perspective of Dr. Jekyll. And um, he's basically explaining his experience in this retired villain's home. And it's kind of an analysis of all the quirks. And, again, something that you haven't really had before is what happens when, you know, you have to put out all these villains to pasture. Like, if the villain doesn't die, they eventually get old. And they're, someone's going to have to, you know, take care of them. And that's what this is. So it's just funny to see these people who their their egos and their you know psychopathic behavior and stuff still exist but in this kind of muted um way in this really kind of cute setting so <laughs> definitely a unique approach for just kind of tweaking or not tweaking but teasing out little characteristics from the characters to make a funny story and i think he did a great job of it Absolutely. So Dr. Jekyll hangs out with Professor Moriarty of Sherlock Holmes fame and Count Dracula, um, you know, king of the vampires. Uh, also known as Livius's uncle. Also known as his uncle Drac. Uh, <laughs> but they've, they've been there a really long time. So not only do they understand all the ins and outs, but they're they're older than a lot of the residents. So, you know, Count Dracula is centuries old and Moriarty's from the you know, 1800s as, as is Dr. Jekyll. And, you know, there's, there's a class system. There's, there's the newer villains that, that show up there, you know, that haven't been around a long time. And then you've got your superhero villains are there and it's, it's a smorgasbord of names that you recognize. And, and what I like about the story is that you can picture, I, I think there were two names that I didn't, that I didn't recognize from, you know, whatever fiction they, they come from. So it's very familiar. And, you know, in my head, I couldn't help but picturing them as like, you know, residents in a, in a retirement home, like kind of older, you know, even Catwoman is mentioned in this. And I'm picturing this, you know, 70 year old Catwoman that's, you know, <laughs> that's still wearing that that suit, you know, the costume and stuff. Yep. Um, but then a lot of them are given characteristics. And I'm going to read um, my favorite passage from this story to give you an idea. The Count always says good evening, no matter the time of day. I used to think it was an affection bred from the Count's love for early 20th century cinema, but lately I've begun to wonder if it might be something more serious, a symptom of a deep-seated problem. Dementia and senility are unfortunate side effects of growing older, even if you happen to be an immortal creature of the night. 
and then it kind of goes on from there. But it's great because he's kind of this loopy, you know, old vampire guy. <laughs> um, did you notice the crossover in this one? Man, I'm getting really bad at this. Sorry. I was, no. <laughs> I was hoping that you said that and something would come to mind right away. So there's a one of the villains, the retired villains, actually appears in Less Than Hero. I was going to say, I mean, it would, I guess that would kind of have to be where yeah. it came from. Mr. Blank. You know, and that's the whole thing. And I thought to myself, like, I, I, I think I know that name. That was one of the ones I couldn't, like, place, though. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. Like, yeah. So uh, Brown, in addition to collecting supervillains from all over, basically any concept of supervillain shows up in this story also includes um, a bad guy from his book, Less Than Hero, which we reviewed. And uh, um, if you want to know what that is, I'm not going to spoil it, but you can go over there and you can hear what Mr. Blank is all about. Um, yeah, I have some quotes for this. You want to do some quotes? Yeah, you go ahead. So I'm going to do a funny one. I'm going to do a serious one, and then I'm going to do a funny one. So the serious one. Um, so the idea of collecting all of these um, villains in a retirement home is inherently funny. But there's also, like, how often is a retirement home an actual funny place, right? So there's a serious moment that I think was well stated. In a way, we've all become victims not of each other, but of our own nostalgia, wishing for the good old days when we existed in perpetual relevance. Aw. Yeah. Poor old fellas. But then, here's a funny one. So, <laughs> these villains have to, you know, uh, you know, fill their day somehow, so they do regular retirement home stuff. And at one point, um, uh, it was, what's the queen from Alice in Wonderland? The queen of, the queen of Hearts. Queen of Hearts is playing <laughs> cards. It's just pl playing cards with the big bad wolf. And, you know, when you hear playing cards, you're thinking like, oh, they're playing, you know, poker or whatever. And all of a sudden, <laughs> here's a line, and I just, oh, because he didn't say what they were playing, this line killed me. Go fish, the big bad wolf shouts, spit and foam spraying from his muzzle. <laughs> that was just absolutely great oh, stuff. I don't, I don't have any quotes that aren't really spoilery. Um, but there's a there's a, a another interaction between the Queen of Hearts and the big bad wolf, and it also involves the Phantom of the Opera. It's just brilliant, <laughs> and I don't want to say it because I think it's I think it's really spoilery. But there's there's a passage in there where you know we're kind of seeing the Phantom of the Opera through Doctor Jekyll's eyes. And it's it's one of my favorite moments in this. <laughs> this I want to say collection because there are three individually available stories, but this grouping of stories, this is my favorite moment. That was an excellent moment, and I definitely recommend. I mean, we're going to recommend reading all three of these anyway, but God damn it, just to get that moment. 99 cents, man. Everybody should be buying these. You want to jump on to our third and final? Yes. Scattered showers with a chance of Daikaiju. Etsuko's father is the weatherman for the local Channel 8 News in Kochi, Japan, where meteorologists not only forecast the weather, they also provide warnings of possible attacks by Daikaiju, giant monsters. While Daikaiju warnings are frequently issued in Tokyo and other northern prefectures for the likes of Godzilla, Rodan, and Kubadan, attacks in southern Japan are rare. Still, Atsuko is concerned about the weekend weather because she's invited to the birthday party of the most popular girl at school. The last thing Atsuko wants is for a thunderstorm or a gigalar attack to ruin the party along with any chance she has of improving her social standing. 
Her father has promised that Tsuko blue skies for the weekend with less than a 5% chance of Daikaiju. But much like forecasting the weather, predicting Daikaiju patterns isn't an exact science. And when those blue skies turn gray and the Daikaiju siren blares, Atsuko will be left with no choice but to prove her worth. I want to start by saying that this was my favorite of the three. So interestingly enough, you know, I said that the second story was kind of similar in scope where we, you know, well, you know, where we see a grouping of very familiar, you know, kind of characters and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, This one was very, very different. Yeah, it definitely was. It even in feel in in like it, it was the darkest of the three by far. Yeah, yeah, there wasn't that lighthearted. So really the idea is the story starts out. Where it's from Atsuko's point of view, and she's got to be, I'm guessing, what, like nine years old or something like that? I would go even as far as 12 or 13, but yeah, yeah she's, she's definitely a youngster. She's a little little girl, and um, she's ashamed of the fact that her father is a weatherman. Um, because for some reason, when your father's a weatherman, if the weather isn't good, everybody blames you because they think that it's his fault. Um, so she's got this kind of social stigma thrown on her from the very beginning. But she's gotten this kind of rare opportunity by being uh, invited to a classmate named Aiko's uh, 11th birthday. So I'm guessing that means, hey, you know, they're probably 11. I was close. We're, if, if we met in the middle, boom, we would have exactly right. No kidding. Um, so now she's, like like the synopsis said, super terrified that something is going to go wrong with the weather that's going to ruin this party. And, um, uh, and then also her reputation at, at school. So, of course, as the synopsis mentions, um, you know, she goes to school and, of course, first we get a little bit of rain, <laughs> but then it's followed by, you know, absolute disaster. Uh, and we kind of kind of go from there. Um, the charming um, moments to, for me in this story were um, even though it was a very serious story and darker than than the previous two, um, he did a lot with names in this one in actually giving the the na- the meaning of the names giving those attributes to the person who has the name which i thought was really clever and 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 pretty funny at times yeah so <laughs> he would work those in where either he would describe the person and then give their name and then say the characteristic like say the definition of that name and it reflects what she just described or she would say this person their name means this and then that person would act that way so uh it was really well done. It was one of the cooler little aspects of the story where he just kind of, you know, themed. He kind of threw that here and there throughout. I don't know what I'm trying to... I can't think of the actual thing I'm trying to say, but, like, it was something that came up over and over again, and it was really cool. I know, and there's a there's a word for that, right? Like, in the previous story, it was the signs um, telling the villains what wasn't allowed in different right. areas. Yep. Yeah. There's a word for it. Smarter people will know what that word is. Thanks for making me feel good. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, so, uh, yeah, a a great story, um, in in its own right, but just very, very different than, than the previous two. And I I will say this too, which I should probably save for the wrap up. I'm going to say it now. I know all three of these stories were written by the same guy and I've, I've read everything else he's written and oddly they don't feel like they're written by the same person. Like he managed to, to give three very different, distinct voices um, to each of these stories, this one being far more distinct, I guess, or different than the other two. But even the other two, the writing style wasn't 
wasn't similar, even if I thought kind of the story structure was a little bit. Yeah. Another one of those thematic um, occurrences in the story I just remembered and I wanted to say it before I forgot was the teacher, Miss Mr. Kasama. Every time he addressed the class, he started with attention students, no matter what he was saying, which was pretty funny. Like at one point it was attention students run. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that was pretty good. Um, I think what made this story um, good for me was that um, so in the other two stories we talked about, these characters and monsters and everything were front and center, and it, you know goofy things were happening, but also like there was a there was a strong story there. This one is so much story, and all like the horrible stuff is happening off stage, where they think that you know these these monsters are coming ashore and and destroying the town and everything, but it, you don't see it, and there's no direct interaction. So it's really like the real terror in this story is all of the students judging this one little girl because her father is a weatherman. And I think that's what was was so endearing about the story to me is that like <laughs> there's all this like real terror happening just outside their their school and for her like the biggest problem is how people are judging her and I thought that was great. Yeah, I mean, it's something to be said because I've heard people talk about, you know, the the weather people and, you know, they're worthless and, you know, and it is. And they're trying to predict something that's not, you know, it, they're predicting, which by definition means, you know, they're they're kind they of guessing <laughs> based on probabilities. Right. Because mathematicians don't predict an answer. Right. They just give you an answer like there's a factual answer to it. Right. Um, so I've heard that. And I thought it was I, I thought it was funny. You took it a step further and would blame somebody, you know, whose whose parent is the weatherman instead yeah. of just blaming the weatherman directly. Like, you know, maybe all of us do or some of us do or I do, uh, you know, <laughs> actually extending that to to the rest of his family. It was like this terrible thing that, that, that she had to deal with. So lots of good stuff in this story. This is really good. I got one quote. If it's okay, I put that out there. Mm -hmm. We all start running the boys for the most part faster than the girls, but gender doesn't play any favorites when it comes to terror. Is good stuff. You ready to do some kind of wrap up on this? Yeah. Um, I don't. <laughs> two things I'm going to say. My two comments about this are everybody's going to know that I already love these stories, so I'm probably going to favorably uh, review them. And it's weird to individually rate um, three different 20 page stories. So I think overall we can just give a, a full impression of the of the lot, right, Livius? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here here's the whole thing. Uh, you know. But go. Never mind. You go ahead. I'll, I'll cover. I'll cover that in my in my wrap up. I'm not treating these like three individual stories. I'm treating them like a like a collection released like in a series. Parts. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. So, first of all, I, I'm not. I'm not going to say that I just wait with bated breath for for something new from um, S.G. Brown. However. I'm always very excited to hear when something new is coming from S.G. Brown, and um, it has been a while since we've had a chance to review something from him. So when Livius, and we were almost giddy on one of the other episodes when we were talking about the fact that these stories were coming out, when Livius brought it to my attention, I was super excited, um, especially considering the, you know, the format and everything. So I couldn't wait to start reading them, and I read them all, I think, yesterday afternoon 
one right after the other, and I was I like loved them all. I think S.G. Brown has such a unique approach to the way he writes things, and it's so it feels so jokey and soft, but he he still manages to kind of like interject all of that serious stuff as well. It's just an easy read, and it's always entertaining. Uh, these stories were great, bite sized really quick and easy to read, and I hope he does more. Um, whenever possible. Uh, five stars, for sure. And I hope that this is just the beginning of more and more stuff like this. As Rob mentioned, I was very excited, as I have been, for any new S.G. Brown since I read um, Breathers upon its initial release um, quite a few years ago. Um, nice to get these um, little bits in between. What I'm hoping, I'm hoping he's working on something monstrous for us to to read next. But yeah, very enjoyable stuff. Like I said, I'm going to kind of treat them as a as a collection. Although you can um, purchase these individually, you can only purchase them individually. But um, I, I strongly encourage people to to purchase all three. Um, what Rob said was true. One of the points I was I was going to make, and and I don't know how much time I'm going to spend on it now. I think touching humor is maybe a genre that that sg brown uh, if that was a if that was a shelf at the bookstore I, I feel that most of his books would go on there so although the first two stories made me you know kind of laugh out loud and, and even you know giggle internally kind of throughout there were touching moments in in each one that you know we treated we treated the sad stuff with a little bit of humor or maybe we treated the humor with a little bit of sad stuff but it makes for for great reading in in all three of these stories um like i said very distinct voice for each one of them i felt um and and kind of um ending off with a more serious story if you read them in the order um in which they were released um yeah i, I loved him overall and and like rob said i hope he does more of these i'm happy to throw a dollar at this guy anytime he puts out a, a another story like this i'm also going to go ahead and give him five stars woo all right um yeah it's a nice little change of pace and something i think that's new for for mr brown because unlike his novels this is something that he did entirely on his own um, which I don't think he's, I don't believe he's done before unless shooting monkeys in a barrel was something that he did on his own. Are you mm -hmm. aware? I don't believe he did, but uh, there's probably a way to find out. Um, lusty, lusty bastard, by the way, is not taken. <laughs> oh, should we register lustybastard.com too? Just to... Oh yeah, we probably should. <laughs> so I think this is kind of a new experiment for him and I hope that it's super successful because, um, you know, it's just fun. And uh, I'm not going to say it's easy. I can't imagine that, it, you know, putting out a 20-page story. I mean, it obviously requires less time than a full novel, but probably not less effort, if that makes sense. Um, but really nice, quick and easy stuff. And, and I think that would be a great way to, if this makes sense, like just kind of get more involvement with his readership on a regular basis. So if he does these little Facebook things every now and then, and people are talking about how excited they are and giving reviews and asking questions, you know, it might actually keep them more consistently in touch with his readership. I'm not sure if I could be totally wrong <laughs> about that, but that's my yeah. hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and just one more thing. So these are only available digitally. And I, I guess what I want to say is I am a huge fan of digital reading and I realize that not everybody has a device that's um, comfortable on to read longer form. Um, fiction, but these are easily readable on your laptop too. And all you have to do is use the uh, the Kindle app for your computer. I'm assuming there's one for Mac as well. Rob? Oh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, download it. And like I said, these are these are short bite sized stories. So it's not. Listen, I read a novel on a computer once. It was a terrible, terrible experience. <laughs> so not <laughs> something I'm likely to do again. But, but stories of this length are easily doable. And, you know, don't let that stop you from doing it. All right. Enough of us talking about these uh, these great stories. Let's have S.G. Brown to talk about him himself. Scott, thanks so much for taking some time to come back and uh, talk to us on Booked again. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So all three of your short stories are now available for purchase on Amazon. Um, listeners uh, just heard our review. Do you want to start by telling us about your decision to publish these stories through Amazon? Um, yeah, it was actually several factors. I'll try not to ramble too long about them. Uh, the first factor is is I, I think I wrote the first one, Scattered Showers with the Chance of Daikaiju. Was it? Was it 2014? Yeah. So, and I'd submitted it to about, you know, 12 or 13 places. And it just, the general consensus I got back is it was too genre for literary magazines like Tin House and uh, Crazy Horse and uh, some other literary magazines. And it was, it was too genre for literary magazines. Hopefully I got that right. (laughs) Uh, So I just, got a little frustrated at not being able to find a home for them because I, these are, these are three, three of my most recent stories and I enjoyed them as much, if not more than anything I'd written in a long while, uh, especially short stories. And I wanted to share them with people. I wanted other people to have a chance to read them. And I, I still planning on putting them in a collection, uh, but I'm working on another, you know, eight or 10 short stories to go along with them. And in the meantime, I wanted to see if I could get them out there uh, to be read. Part of the reason that I wanted to do it on as eBooks is because speaking with a lot of other writers who are in the same boat as me, who are sort of mid-list writers, um, it's difficult to make a living as a mid-list writer if you're not, you know, J.K. Rowling or uh, Stephanie Myers or Stephen King or somebody who's a New York Times bestseller and that a lot of the mid-listers are becoming hybrid authors, having traditional publishing as well as doing the the self-publishing through eBooks. And I could have gone with the publisher for it, but for 99 cent short stories, it seemed kind of silly. Uh, I was also fortunate to have a friend who, who did the covers for me pro bono. So I didn't have to worry about recouping that and I don't have to, they're short stories. So, I've had several friends do edits on them who I trust, who are uh, have editing skills, so I, I don't need to pay a professional editor to do, to do the editing. I don't have to worry about the plot falling apart quite so much and plot points not getting hit in a longer work. So that was the second reason. And the third reason is, um, unfortunately, I'm, my, my books have not sold well. From breathers to less than hero, it's been a downward sloping uh, supply and demand curve. So my agent has basically told me that it's probably not going to be possible to sell another S.G. Brown novel to a traditional publishing house because they are not going to want to throw money at me. Um, because And bookstores probably won't want to carry an S.G. Brown novel. That doesn't mean I'm not still writing. Uh, I'm writing under a pen name, but they're not dark comedy and social satire. They're a little bit different. But the books that I would write under S.G. Brown, I would probably need to self-publish. 
unless something happens and my other books start to sell. So this was a way for me to dip my toes into the self-publishing pool and get over the self-publishing can be overwhelming and a bit intimidating uh, for those of us who aren't quite as a, as a adept at it just naturally and jumping into it. So this was a good way to, to sort of get over those, that intimidation or that, that fear of, you know, how do I go about this? What's the best way to do it? And so that, that was the third reason for doing it is to, give myself a little bit of experience with it before jumping into something that's a larger work. That was quite a bit to, to, to take in. Um, I want to, I want to frame, um, why I asked that question because we have, a, we have a significant uh, number of writers that listen and, um, self-publishing is of interest to some of them. Um, for some it's, it's all they do. I, I want to take a step back and as a reader and as a fan of your work to say, you know what? Thank you. It was just nice to have it instantly available. Um, it was nice not to have to pick up an entire collection um, to read one of your stories. And not saying that I wouldn't have found something else maybe in there that I like, but I have favorite writers who are in collections, and, and I don't I don't always buy them because it's 270 pages and there's one or two people in there I want to read. So um, I want to applaud your decision to release them and make them available to us as um, as readers. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, kind of tying in some of the other things you've said, is. Uh, I was recently watching something and it was about um, music artists and it must have been right after right after Prince died and kind of how he started doing his own thing and how more artists are and there's, you know, uh, know, a little more revenue or a little more control over it and stuff. So I definitely think that the ability um, and the comfort with self-publishing could be very good for people. Now, I understand there are not, you know, huge advances tied to self-publishing, but there's, I think, a little more instant gratification both for the author and and for the readers. Like, when it's ready to go, you can put it out there. Um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sorry, I didn't interrupt you. No, no, that's okay. I was just going to say, versus I know there are books that have been sitting with publishers for six, eight months that I am dying to get my hands on, and they have release dates of, like, 2018, you know, so it, it's it's more gratifying, again, likely for you as the artist and, and for me as the, the consumer, far more gratifying to get this stuff much quicker. Well, that's and that's good to, to hear, too. I mean, that's that's a nice thing that I've talked to some other some other writer friends who have gone down this road and, you know, they're publishing a series of, of thrillers. Part of the thing you run into is that. At least the people I've talked to. There are certain genres that tend to sell better, whether it's traditional publishing or or self-publishing, and and they tend to be you know the thrillers, the suspense, uh, zombie <laughs> novels still sell well if you hit the right uh, target audience. I've got a friend who's doing very well writing military zombie novels, and because he found out what people wanted to read, and he was in military and he was writing zombie stuff, and so it was just a perfect fit for him. And uh, he's having a great time doing it, and he gets to you know put them out there. Uh, being in charge of your own book cover artwork is awesome. Uh, I, I I like most of the covers that were done for me by the publishers, but they weren't wouldn't necessarily have been what I would have imagined. And actually, the covers for these short stories were beyond what I expected. Uh, I, I had hoped for something that was nice and eye-catching, and, and the three covers they come up with were 
just, I thought they were fantastic. I really love them. Uh, they, they hit it just perfect. And especially with the scattered showers, they sent me the sort of the concept for it. And I looked at it and I thought, that looks interesting. I'm, I'm not quite sure that's quite what I want. And when I saw the final product, I said, wow, that's just, that's fabulous. And, you know, it was, it was, it was delightful for me to see. And it is, it's nice to be able to put them out there as singles. Um, you know, I, I also hope that somebody who maybe isn't familiar with my stuff will take a chance on a 99 cent short story and then say, Hey, this is kind of cool. Well, maybe I'll check out some of his other stuff. So, you know, there's a little bit of that in there too, but yeah, having a little bit more self-control over it, you know, personal control over your, over your, your final product, uh, is nice. Um, it, it's, it takes a little bit more work. It takes more time away from the writing process. That's the, that's the one thing is that you have to be in charge of everything, uh, along the steps of the way, whether it's improving your artwork, you know, getting somebody to edit it, going over those edits with somebody, but then also doing all the formatting. Cause I'm doing that on my own as well. So it does tend to, to take away some of that time you would rather have for creativity. But in, in the end, you said you, you, you get to have the final say on everything and it. It gets out there a, a hell of a lot faster. A um, couple thoughts. First thing, so you did all the editing and stuff on the stories as well? Um, well, I did the editing, but I had I had three different readers. Well, they're, they're readers, but they're, they're friends of mine who, who actually have done editing, editing for anthologies, mm-hmm. editing for collections, have worked for... Uh, magazines or, or or publications as editors and so i had three separate people read each of one read scattered showers one read dr sinisters and one read remedial english so it was just so i wasn't inundating one with all three um and they just you know they provided the feedback to me as as a friend as, a, as an editor so uh and they all three of them helped immensely to to help hone the stories and i also had a couple of people who are japanese descent and who have lived in japan or are very familiar with its culture give me feedback on the scattered showers as well so that i didn't completely screw something up in terms of the japanese culture since i've never been to japan <laughs> and all I re- all of my research was done you know online through wikipedia and other and other sites trying to trying to get the tone right, or at least what it felt like felt right to me. That's awesome. Uh, I was gonna. So my my original observation was gonna be, I don't know why, but like I am just laser focused on finding errors in stories, and there was like legitimately nothing that I found that was, you know, a spelling mistake or a typo or anything like that. So awesome. And um, yeah, I saw you posted, and we'll get into. We're probably gonna talk to you about the Facebook events as part of your launch, but I saw you posted a little bit about your research. Um, and that's got to be, especially when you're representing an entirely different culture, that's got to be kind of a big thing. So it's good that you had some people to, to fact check that it sounded, it, it read great. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. And actually going back to the, the finding errors, I did have somebody find one in Dr. Sinister's uh, and actually, you might have found it in your version. I might have changed it before you read it. Because that's, that's the nice thing, too, is after it goes live, you can go in and make edits yeah. to it. And, <laughs> and as soon as somebody reads it, it's fixed. 
So he had it said they got together for move night instead of movie night. Oh. And I had missed it all the way through, and he he caught it, and I went and fixed it. You know, five minutes later. So that's 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 another <laughs> nice aspect of it. Of course, you you wouldn't be able to fix it if I did the print on demand, which right. which yeah. I would I would do with longer works, but doing a print on demand for for the short stories, it seemed a little a little superfluous. Uh, not something I really wanted to 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 try at the moment. So sure. Well, at least you used your powers for good. Um, good friend of the show, David James Keaton, has changed entire sections of books <laughs> after the fact because he just thought there was something that was better. And I think the ability to go in and change stuff. Can, uh... that, that actually, that's actually a problem because, you know, even just reading when I read I, I posted videos on the Facebook launch page of me reading the first few pages of each story. And even when reading it, I thought I, I could have. I could have phrased this better or I could have taken this word out. You can always fix it. That's the problem. It's never done. Yeah. There's never, you can, you go back and you've, you know, even three weeks later and say, okay, well I, I would have written this line better. I actually went in and changed one line in remedial English for reanimated corpses. It was the line. Originally the line was, um, mummies are, uh, <laughs> the, trying to the, remember exactly what it was something about being rolls of Charmin or something. Yeah, well, I said I said uh, they are are uh, stuck up rolls of Charmin, and I said you know pretentious is a much better word. I said I said mummies are a bunch of stuck up rolls of Charmin, and I decided mummies are pretentious rolls of Charmin was was rolled better, especially with the way I described the vampires and werewolves as well. So I went and I changed it um, <laughs> because I, I liked it better. But I just realized that it's just—it's a rabbit hole you can go down and go in to keep changing things. So I'm—I'm I'm not doing anymore. <laughs> oh, I, you know what I did? I just went back to—I uh, went to my Kindle app on my iPad just to see what my because I had that highlighted and mine. My highlight says mummies are a bunch of stuck-up rolls of Sherman. So, yeah, interesting. It must not have updated. Well, I mean, you. yeah, it could have been. I'm going to that page to see. Well, it still says it, so maybe mine didn't update. Interesting. I don't know how that works, so I don't either. I don't know. Maybe since I highlighted it, it like locked it in place. <laughs> All right. So going back earlier, you said um, something about and and you said how some people uh, end up being hybrid authors where they're um, doing some stuff with publishers and some self publishing. When you said the term hybrid author, the first thing that came to mind was something that I've been hearing more and more of people doing is they'll have their their own body of work. And then they'll have tie-ins and stuff like that. So they'll write a book for, you know, um, like one of the video game, you know, like the series of books that come from a video game or like Alien or something like that. Brian Evanson does um, lots of tie-in books and stuff like that. So I thought that's what the direction that you were going in. Um, would you ever consider doing anything like that? Or is that something that you have no interest in? I think it depends if somebody offered it to me. Um I would I would need to be happy with writing it because obviously when you're doing that, you're writing somebody else's – well, I, I'm not going to say obviously because I've never done it. So I don't know how much leeway you have in terms of the creation. I don't know if you have to stick in a certain how – much, how, much, how much room you have to be creative outside of the boundaries of, of the storytelling. And if you're bound to, to have a specific ending, you know, have it told a certain way – rather than the way that maybe you would rather tell it. So if if it was something that 
I was really interested in doing and somebody approached me about it, I would definitely consider it. Although it, it, it's not a tie-in, you know, I saw Zombies Eating Santa Claus wasn't something I'd planned on writing. My publisher approached me about writing it, but I had the leeway to say, you know, they just said, do you want to write a, uh, a holiday-themed zombie novella? And when I came back to them, I said, can I have it be a sequel to Breathers? Because that was the only way I could think of to write one that I, I really wanted to write. And they said, sure. So I had a lot more leeway. Um, I think some people are, are, are much better at, at working within those boundaries and writing to a specific audience. I'm not sure that's my skill set. I'd have to have the opportunity to see if, I, if, I, if it was. Um, but obviously a lot of the stuff that I write, I, I, I tend to write, not that I don't write for an audience, but I don't write with a specific ending in mind or necessarily as I'm writing it thinking, uh, this is really going to make my fans happy. I'm writing a story that I'm really happy with and that, that matters to me and hoping that it connects with other people, um, is, is what I'm doing. And so would I be able to to write something that's specifically designed to connect with an audience if I don't care about it? I'd, I'd have to see, um, you know, or I'd, or I'd have to care about it. It would have to be some. It would have to be some sort of. Um, I can't think of the word in my head now because I'm a writer. Uh, you know, if it was, <laughs> if it was, if, if someone wanted me to do uh, some sort of tie-ins for the you know the Aliens franchise. You know, I'm a big fan of aliens, and so that might be kind of fun. But if it was something that I didn't really know that much about and wasn't that invested in, um, it might be a little bit more difficult. Like they're like, we want you to write a Pokemon book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would probably t be tough for me to do. <laughs> Though actually, uh, not to since, since you say Pokemon, uh, I Pokemon helped to ins to inspire uh, the two daikaiju that i created for <laughs> scattered showers with a chance of daikaiju nice all right if you had to pick um one of the three um which one is uh, which one's your favorite story it would probably be scattered showers with a chance of daikaiju and and part of that is because it's a little bit of a departure from dr sinisters and scattered or, uh, and, and remedial english are probably they're closer to the stuff I've written uh, in terms of their tone. Scattered Showers is a little bit different. And it was nice to, you know, and, and writing from the point of view of a 10-year-old Japanese girl is not something I've ever done. <laughs> so it was nice to sort of get out of my comfort zone there and do that. And several of the other stories that I've, I've written and that I'm working on are also from the point of view of uh, grammar school age children uh, and females. And so it has a definite, definitely a different tone to it. And so I think for that reason, Scattered Showers probably is, is my favorite from the, from that standpoint, but it's, you know, I don't have kids, but I've had, you know, I've had multiple cats before. It's like, you know, picking a favorite cat you like this cat better for this reason, and this cat has these qualities that are nice. So I'll say Scattered Showers is a 1A with, you know, the other two is, is 1B and 1C. So not a whole <laughs> lot of difference between them. I don't want them to get angry at me and 
It's like Sophie's choice. You have to get one <laughs> back. That's yeah, right. Put one down, right? Which one's it going to be? I can't. Yeah. So. Um. So I guess uh, because you haven't heard it, but the people that listen to this entire episode have, one of the observations I made about scattered showers about it being kind of in a way different, in a tonal kind of way, different than remedial English for reanimated corpses and Dr. Sinister's Home for Retired Villains, um, in my perspective of it would be that um, while the horrible thing that's happening in the story is kind of off screen with the monsters attacking um, because we're inside the the school, um, the real horror of the story is social pressure and i thought it was just kind of a cool what's the word i'm looking for contrast between the two because there's this real life horror happening out in the world but the most important thing is how this little girl is being judged by her peers so i thought that was just such a wonderful uh contrast to show that it was that the story just charmed the hell out of me because of for that reason oh cool i'm glad i'm glad that worked out that way because I'm a pantser, for that's the word that everybody likes to use, whether you're a pantser or a plotter. I, I didn't know exactly how the story was going to play out. I didn't know exactly how it was going to end. Uh, I just had that opening scene, you know, and with the mother looking out the window and, and the scar just all of a sudden was there. You know, it's, sometimes there's, those are just the magical things that you can't really explain when you're writing. Sometimes things just pop up. And when I got down to the end of the story, there was a nice tie-in back to that. So um, it just worked out. And you know, sometimes sometimes things work, stories work out better than others. And and I think that's part of the reason I like this one is that it, it did have that sort of um, circularity. Isn't the isn't the word I'm looking for? <laughs> but it came, it came back around again, and you know, there was that sort of nice closure. Although the story itself, you know, I have had a couple of people say that 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 the ending killed them. Um, they wanted just a little bit more, and I explained to them. I said it just seemed like that was the place it needed to end. I I, I didn't I didn't see any reason to take it any further than that because nothing that happened after that point was as important as ever, anything that happened before it. I've had this conversation now with at least a dozen authors since we've been doing this podcast. And I don't know if sometimes maybe writers don't get readers in that, you know, we, we, we expect you to know what happened after that. It's just, you know what I mean? Like we, we expect you to know and, and we want to know. So it's uh, I, I was perfectly fine with the way it ended, but it's interesting that you say that people wanted, you know, a little more closure or, or whatever. It, it it is. It's interesting because we look at you guys as like guys who created this world, and you have to know what happened. It's not okay for you not to know. What, you know what I mean? It's it's an interesting. Well, I I could I could probably say I knew what happened, and I could have written something else. <laughs> sure. But I didn't, yeah. No, I, didn't, I know. Yeah. yeah, I didn't see any point in continuing it. But no, but sometimes there is because people are like, do you know what happened? I'm like, you know, maybe. <laughs> 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 yeah, and 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 I and I'm notorious for for having ambiguous endings. Uh, I do that pretty much all the way across the board. And there are a lot of people who don't like ambiguous endings, and and I understand why. You know, you can you can go back to television series, especially especially. Well, you're investing a lot more in a in a you know a five or six season television series than you are in a, a 320 page book. 
but that doesn't mean you still don't want some some people really want all the answers you can look at even though i didn't see the sopranos ever i know what the last episode was and i know the story about how it ended and a lot of people even though they, they don't need everything wrapped up into a tiny little bow or a neat little package they want to know what happened and they want some sort of affirmation and, and if not closure at least some sort of answer and you could argue that that's because life doesn't have answers and life doesn't have closure and everything doesn't get wrapped up into a nice neat little package in life things are messy and so in stories and tv shows where you have this emotional investment having that closure having that answer having those answers helps you feel a little bit better about the fact that life does not so you know that's that's one of the things that that I've seen thrown about and one of the things that I, I probably realized anyway. And, and I, I hate to not give the answers, even if people may want them, but sometimes, sometimes too much is sometimes, sometimes giving the answers is too much. And it's, it's kind of like the end of the wrestler uh, with, with Mickey Rourke. You don't know if he lives or dies. It's up to you. Did he? <laughs> Didn't he? Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like create your own adventure. So Livius and I are kind of polar opposites on this exact topic that you just uh, you just you just talked about. Where um, a Livius thinks that the you know the, what he just said the whole the writer should know or you know he thinks that they you know should know whatever you said. I'm not going to represent what you said. <laughs> um, but there's another thing that's very Livius where whenever anytime we read something that's short, I'm just waiting for the moment that Livius says. Nah, I just I wish there was a little bit more because like that's, that's something he always mm -hmm. says and yep. I don't know if did you say that this time Livius I don't remember. Um, no, this time I don't believe I did. All right, so that's I mean that just means that it was good stories. So anyway, yep, absolutely. I just wanted to point that out. Livius and I are always like you could you could you could have cut the story off three pages earlier on each one of them and I'd have been like, well, that's what they wanted me to read. I'm cool. And Livius is like, why didn't you fucking end it? So. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Rob thinks he may have caught all of the crossovers in these three stories. So we know you like to do crossovers. I was terrible this time. I, I kind of had a feeling about one and I wasn't even certain. Um, can you talk a little bit about your love of crossovers and maybe, maybe tell Rob how many there were, if you know, <laughs> uh, by crossovers, uh, are you talking about like sharing? Well, it's right. So characters, for, yeah. characters, for instance, mm -hmm. either characters or nods to, um, mm -hmm. some people call them Easter eggs, whatever right. you want to call them. Uh, well, in remedial English, uh, the, even though he's not Andy Warner, the professor, uh, Professor Warner is named for Andy Warner in Breathers. And again, it's, it's a nod to, to Breathers, but it's not him. Um, I'd have to go back and, and, and think. And again, because I've been fighting off a cold for five days, my head is not nearly as clear as it normally is. Um, but I'll let you guys throw them out and I can, and maybe it'll help to, to jar some other things loose in my head. Well, there is the the big one in Doctor Sinister is that Livius did not catch um, oh, the, the crossover yeah. with Less Than Hero. Yes, <laughs> yes, Mister Blank, Mister Blank and Less Than Hero. Actually, in 
in Dr. Sinister's other than other than the the, the one line, the reference to um, <laughs> why can't I think of his name? Uh, Superman, uh, the the foil of Superman, Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor, where I actually have him saying a line. You know, Lex Luthor is not uh, public domain, but you know, having him say one line where it's, he's, they're just referencing him, he's not actually in that. <laughs> I figured I was okay with that, especially after Big Egos, considering that I wrote chapters with Holden Caulfield and James Bond and Captain Kirk uh, without having to worry about it, you know, considering this is satire and, you know, um, and and South Park and Robot Chicken get away with all sorts of stuff. I figured having Lex Luthor say one line was fine. And the same thing with Skeletor. Skeletor is not public domain, but pretty much everybody else who actually has a speaking part in it or plays a prominent role as public domain. Uh, a lot of the others aren't, but they're just mentioned in passing. And the only one that is not that has a major part is Mr. Blank. And of course, he's mine. So I can put him in there if I want to. How much fun was it to just kind of pick through all the villains and give them roles in that story? That was fun. And that's that's one of the reasons that, you know, it, all three of them were fun to write in their own way, and Doctor Sinister's was a lot of fun to sort of, you know, throw in the the different aspects of it. And it just—I I don't know if I—if you had seen on my Facebook page originally, this was going to be a, a story about a superhero's home for you know a home, a retirement home for for washed-up superheroes, but it just didn't have any momentum going forward and I, I it just wasn't going anywhere and then I, I changed it to Dr. Sinister's Home for Retired Villains and it just kind of took off it was just so much easier to write part of that is because there's so many public domain <laughs> uh, villains that you can use <laughs> and when you start going you know villains and, and you you broaden your reach to go to the big bad wolf or to Wiley e. Coyote you know, or to the Queen of Hearts, um, and then you go to you know Svengali and and some of these others. You know, you can you can pretty much pick and choose from all over the place, and you can find a bunch of them. And so it's it was just a lot of fun, and it was it was fun to have. I can't remember um, again because my brain's not working. The the two the two womanizers who go strolling through in their Under Armour outfits uh, going to to work out in the gym. I liked having the juxtaposing these, these older, you know, washed up villains who are, you know, you know over a hundred years old with a modern day sporting equipment and sporting apparel. Uh, it was just kind of nice to have that, uh, anachronism kind of sort of, not really. Um, but it was fun to do that. You know, the wicked witch not wanting to go anywhere near the pool, screwing around with Rumpelstiltskin as him being disgusting. And then, of course, there's, you know, the Big Bad Wolf and the Queen of Hearts, which several people have commented on. So, <laughs> Yeah, that closet scene is Livius's favorite, uh, favorite scene of that book. All three stories, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was, it, it, I had to do research, obviously, but then it was a lot of fun to find something that, that worked towards their quirks or their backgrounds. You know, the Phantom of the Opera sort of sneaking around and and basically being a voyeur uh, was fun to play with because um, you'd get you'd get bored. Yeah. You know, in retirement, especially if you're a villain. So and and that one was nice to write, too. And it it 
you know, on on the surface, it is kind of a fun, playful romp. But underneath, it's it's about dealing with the fact that you've become irrelevant. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. And, and and how do you how do you how do you deal with that? And so you know, there you know, you could you could miss it. You know, you could you could easily miss it, but it was definitely something that I wanted to to have come across. So. Yeah, I think that's one of the quotes that I pulled from Dr. Sinister's was, in a way, we've all become victims, not of each other, but of our own nostalgia, wishing for the good old days when we existed in perpetual relevance. I thought that was, like, for how kind of funny and tongue-in-cheek the story was, it was just that, like, real punch of, like, wow, there's, like, real shit going on here. And I thought it was great. Oh, um, thank you. I think we're going to change courses real quick here. Because I wanted to talk a little bit, if it's okay, about your your Facebook launch. So um, each story came out, like one would drop, and then the, a week later the next one dropped, and then the week later the third one dropped. And you had launching launch events on Facebook for each one. And I thought they were very well executed because um, when when the day came and you you did the the whole event you had a video where you were reading part of the story, but then in posts you would talk about interesting trivia that tied into, like, you know, the creation of the story and everything. So um, I, it's probably one of the, the most well-executed, like, online launch kind of things I've seen before. So how did you, how did you arrive at that strategy? <laughs> uh, I actually, actually it, was, it was, for the first one, I didn't think I was trying to figure out what to do and what I could do. And I was, I think I came up with the, the idea for doing the reading of the, of the story, like <laughs> two days before, if not the day before. And, uh, I think it was the day before. So, you know, it wasn't all completely planned. Once I had the first one, I'm like, okay, this is the, this is the blueprint for what I want to do. But I did come up, I knew I had some tidbits I wanted to do. Um, and so what I would do is uh, I, I would write, actually, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll write myself an email and send it to my inbox, and then I just pull it up, and then I copy and paste the little tidbits that I had. So I just went through, and I wanted to have five or six tidbits I could post throughout the day, um, you know, several in the morning, and then, you know, go to my day job, and then come home, post one in the early afternoon, and every Monday, I from three to five ish, somewhere around there. I, I, I volunteer at the, uh, SPCA nearby me, um, at the uh, adoption shelter, uh, socializing cats so that they're more adoptable and so that they, they get attention. And so, you know, I'd, I'd be in there and then I'd come home and I'd, I'd post a couple of more of things. So I try to spread them out throughout the day from like seven to seven. So it wasn't all at one time just in case people were on at different times and it wasn't inundating everybody. Uh, but the video came up as a last second and well, not quite a last second thing, but it definitely was the day, if not the day before, definitely two days before technical difficulties aside, uh, it, it, it worked out, but, uh, but yeah, so it was just, the first one was a little bit of fly by the seat of my pants, figure out some ways to provide some interesting information that people might, find relevant or fun and then continue from there. Well, I'm guessing that your biggest challenge then was the technical aspect. Cause I have to imagine, and, and I have a, I have a hobby now 
when someone has any type of anything event on Facebook, I watch how many people have no idea what it means and talk about like, I can't make it because they think it's a physical thing or like read the reasons. You, you know what I mean? So yeah. I was going to talk about the, the challenge of getting people just to understand that really it's it's a, it's kind of like an online hangout versus, uh, you know, God, I'd love to make it, but, you know, I'm a little under the weather. And like you're going to be sitting in front of your computer anyway, just getting people to understand what a, what a Facebook event is versus uh, your traditional, you know, um, come to this bookstore or bar or restaurant or whatever for a release. Yeah, the first time I did it, I actually posted a bit on my description saying that this isn't actually going to be held at a physical bookstore. It's going to be held here on this event page. So you don't have to worry about, you know, commute traffic or trying to find parking. You know, you can just come by anytime between 7 and 10. <laughs> you know, once, twice, how many times, every many times you want. So, and some people, yeah, they didn't quite get it. They said, wish I could make it. I'm like, you're busy from 7 a.m. Till, till 10 at night. You know, you can just swing by. I mean, you had the time to come on here and say, I wish I could make it. You you have the time <laughs> to jump on there and say, hey, this is cool. So, uh, but I only had a couple of people who didn't quite get it. And um, otherwise, I think most people did. But yeah, I wasn't sure how many people were going to show up. Um, I had more questions with the first one. I didn't really have very many questions with either Dr. Sinister's or Scattered Showers. It seemed like I had more engagement. And I wasn't, and once I got to this one, and it, you know, it's kind of drawn out over three weeks because I would do the giveaway starting on Wednesday. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday giveaway. Saturday announced the winners. Sunday, a day of leaving people alone and not having any promotion or anything. And then Monday, I have to launch. Then Tuesday, I have leave people alone. <laughs> and then Wednesday, start with the giveaway for the next book. So it's been a little time consuming, but I didn't want to do all three at the same time because they're all three so different. And it felt like just throwing it all together. And, and I didn't like that idea. You know, it's a learning experience. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not sure I would necessarily do it exactly the same, but it seemed like a good idea at the time I set it up. So, well, I, um, I spend less time on Facebook, um, then, I think than Rob does, um, but it apparently it looked to be executed very well, and we were both uh, both uh, happy to see what seemed to be a successful Facebook launch party in comparison to some of the, um, the failures. I guess is probably the only way to say it that we've seen in the past. Yeah. yeah. Well, I do have to say that in terms of in terms of the responses for the what's weird is that I would say at least half the people who won have not claimed their prizes even though I've you know, messaged them either individually or as a group. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> if you don't want to win the prize, that's fine. But I had much more engagement on both my Facebook profile page and my Facebook author page than I do on Twitter at all. Now, I'm not on any of them that much. I do engage a little bit more on Facebook, and I realize that you probably have to engage more on Twitter. I go on Twitter and, and engage here and there, but I don't spend a lot of time on there. That may be part of it. I'm not sure, but I definitely received a lot more uh, likes, shares, and comments on my on my my giveaways on Facebook than I did retweets on on Twitter. I never even reached 20 retweets for any of the three giveaways. 
I think which to me uh, seems to me seems like a small amount. Yeah. But again, maybe it's because I'm just maybe it's because I don't engage enough on Twitter. Um, but you know, I'm giving something away. It seems like people will be like, yeah, I'll take that. Sure. It's free. We gave up on giveaways yeah. after the first year. You would think. And we were giving away like signed books, like I mean, just you know, just cool stuff, and just getting people to enter. Anyway, it's like Twitter is a hard, Twitter is a hard nut to crack. I think the people who are really successful at Twitter don't even know why they're successful. I think it's just, I, I think the Facebook has like uh, you know its own kind of algorithm, and there, there's something that you can maybe figure out there. I think with Twitter, it's it's the it's the wild west, and, yeah. and nobody knows what works, and some people get lucky, and and the rest of us just you know, scroll through Twitter feeds yep. based on your, on your, on the beginning of the episode. Do we, uh, do we know what we might see next from SG Brown? Um, I'm not sure. I, I wrote a book, um, called dream lover, which is based on my short story, dream girls in scattered or shooting monkeys in a barrel, though, uh, not quite as dark. It's a romantic comedy about love, loss and extraterrestrial sex dolls. So, um, it has a lot of, I mean, it's, it's about a guy who ends up in a relationship with an extraterrestrial sex doll for various reasons. And there's a lot of sex. <laughs> uh, and well, you would hope. Yes. And, and it deals a lot of, you know, with issues of, of, you know, objectification of women, um, and, and men who objectify them. So whether or not that has the right audience, I don't know, because women may not enjoy reading this. I'm not, I'm not, uh, glorifying, uh, the objectification, objectification of women, but it's, they may read it and go, you know, I just don't really feel like reading this. So I'm not sure I, I wanted to write it and I was having fun writing it. And so I'm not sure whether or not it's it's going to hit the right chord. And I'm you know I may publish it anyway. I'm just not sure. Um, I am interested in, in doing a sequel to Lucky Bastard. Uh, that's the that's probably top of my list in terms of doing something that's SG Brown. Um, and in terms of something that you're used to seeing me publish, that would be it would be one of those two most likely, either Dream Lover or uh, a lucky bastard sequel, but when it would come out, um, I'm not sure. Um, probably not until sometime next year, but if, if things go well, then I can, you know, hopefully I can pump out a couple of books. I wrote two books in one year because I, I wrote, I wrote a non SG Brown novel that I sent to my agent and I've never written two books in a year. So I, I feel like I'm a little bit more on my game in terms of of productivity um, but we'll see what happens with that one and if i can jump into writing lucky bastard uh, i have a lot of ideas for it in terms of where it's going to take place and the plot and characters and it would just be a, a nice fun romp uh without having to get heavy at all really and so that would probably be the next thing i would write but I'll, as soon as i know i'll let you guys know Awesome. Well, both both options sound awesome. The the uh, the 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 lover one. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name that you gave it. Um, Dream lover. Dream lover. Thank you. And uh, man, my brain's not. It's been a long day for me, so my brain's not working at top capacity right now. And then, obviously, following up Lucky Bastard would be really cool too. 
Well, Scott, we want to thank you for coming on and taking a good chunk of your day uh, to talk to us again. Always great to have you on. And uh, thanks for thanks for these stories. They were just awesome. Sure. Well, thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the stories and I appreciate you guys uh, having me on to talk and, and talk about books and writing and all sorts of stuff. Rob, five years ago when we started this podcast, I didn't think that we would have S.G. Brown on because I was a huge fan of his before we started this, and I'm still a huge fan. And it's still just really exciting to to have him on. I mean, I, I love all of our guests, but I don't love them equally. No, not at all. I mean, there, <laughs> just, <laughs> there's, just being some, honest, yeah. there's some I don't like at all. I mean, so I get to choose because I do kind of the website stuff, um, you know, how, you know, a lot of the things that appear. And so I chose the... Or or all of the things that appear. All right, all of it. (laughs) I chose the five authors that are popular authors on Booked. And it's Stephen Graham Jones, Paul Tremblay, Chuck Wendig, Josh Mallerman, and our man S.G. Brown, because I just love his stuff. Like, every book we read I love, every time we have him on, I think he's just, like, just such a great guy to talk to. Do Do you find yourself doing this thing where... You know, I, I talk to people about the podcast, coworkers and stuff, right? But there's there's times I go, oh, we're, we're going to, yeah, yeah, I got stuff to do tonight. We're going to interview S.G. Brown. And even if those people don't know who it is, like, <laughs> it just means enough to me to name drop. So, no. All right. So I'm going to talk to you about a phenomenon that I experience at work all the time where I'll think of something that's either like a reference to something book related or, or something that's funny that's book related or... Or something like this, where like we're gonna have Jess G. Brown on, and I'll just look at the people that I could tell, and I'm gonna know that they won't understand, and it won't <laughs> matter. And then I just get angry at them. Well, it is their fault. It is their fault. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right, you can head over to <laughs> Amazon and pick up Remedial English for Reanimated Corpses, Doctor Sinister's Home for Retired Villains, and Scattered Showers with a chance of Daikaiju. Um, for 99 cents each, or you can get all three for under three bucks. You just got to buy them separately for 99 cents each. Doesn't that, I mean, people I'm no like ma- bundles. People uh, like bundles. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> we've got lots of years in retail between the two of us. Yeah. We should know this. Yeah, people want to hear this. Three put for them all in your bucks. shopping cart. It'll say $2.97. That is correct. Good math, my friend. Good math. Yeah. Yeah, definitely worth a read. Very fast, but just great reads. Check it out. All right. Um, next up on Booked, um, author of Welcome to Night Vale. <sighs> yeah. Um, and and the, you know, co-author of, of the podcast itself. So um, mostly Void, Partially Stars, and the Great goal, Glowing Coils of the Universe. Jeffrey Craner um, will be on to talk to us about, uh, about Night Vale in general. So this is the one that we've been vague casting for like a month now where we're like something cool might be happening and we don't want to say this until it's, you know, um, we, yeah, we're, we got Jeffrey Craner on and the, the interview is recorded and it's ready to post. We're just going to make you wait a week for it. That's how we do things around here. So that's what you'll hear next. After that, we're not really sure. And that's nice. <laughs> yeah. It's hey, kind of nice to not be really sure. <laughs> do you want to vague cast something else? Because we just got some other good news last night. Oh, I don't know how to vague cast this. All right. There is a possibility. We're, we're <laughs> going to call it a, a chance at this point that booked may be available on a different venue. <laughs> 
with um, with with maybe slightly different content. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's what we'll say for now. But uh, Rob and I are I'm going to say we're in talks because that sounds that sounds really important. We are in talks <laughs> um, to, the, to do something. Yep. There's a door that we've been waiting to open for a while and we're hearing some some the locks jiggling on the other side so uh something might happen soon that door might open up for us so we'll see we'll see very soon that's right but we'll, we'll still be here oh yeah yeah you're we'll never make gonna make sure people know yeah we're never going to give you up <laughs> oh 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 <sighs> The listening audience just got rickrolled. Oh, and it only took 320 episodes. All right, so that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Go buy your SG Brown stuff, all of it. While you're there, you know, you buy those three stories. If you haven't bought all of his other books, I don't see why you wouldn't just get them all at the same time, right? That's right. And, <laughs> and uh, check back uh, in one week from now for, for our, our interview with Jeffrey Craner. Until then, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Ned, and keep reading.